last day of 2017. It's an, uh, it's an honor to be here with you this morning, um, Philbrins. We saved your spot up here. We don't know in the back. Um, I just realized my phone's not on silent, so I mean, we call that pulling a bruise there. <laughs> Our passage today, if you turn to uh, Matthew, the book of Matthew, will be in chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Starting in Matthew 6, verse 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not in more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan, or span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let us pray. Father, we, I humbly come before you right now, God. We come to you asking that you would speak to us now. That you would meet with us here today, this morning, and proclaim your word. I pray that, Lord, your word be proclaimed faithfully and purely. that you prepare the hearts and minds that are here today. May your word confront us, may it cut us, may it break us, may it convict us of sin, and Lord, may it lead us to repentance. May you exalt Christ this morning. May you edify your people. May this be all done for your glory, O God. And I thank you, Lord, for the undeserved privilege to stand here this morning. We love you, we thank you, and we ask this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> in uh, 2017, or, sorry, 2016, a Northwestern Mutual study interviewed 2,646 adult Americans concerning their finances. The study found that 85% of those interviewed felt some form of financial anxiety. Roughly two-thirds of those interviewed admitted that their 
financial anxiety was neg negatively affecting their health. 70% said it adversely impacted their home life. And 51% said that it negatively impacted their social life. A more recent study found that 28% of millennials are experiencing so much financial anxiety that it's impacted their job performance. And 23% of millennials interviewed said that financial stress makes them physically ill on a weekly or monthly basis. Now, that was some pretty general statistics, but, and I'm not sure of those interviewed how many were professed believers. But regardless, I think we can all relate to anxiety in some form or another, especially when it comes to finances and stress. In fact, I was a prime culprit of that. I uh, would spend much of my day checking my Valley First credit union app multiple times a day. And uh, not to balance anything, not to just, to just to make sure everything was still there, nothing... Nothing had been taken off. And if there was a charge that I was unaware of, Lily would get the phone call. Why'd you spend $8 at Taco Bell? As she's pulling out of Taco Bell. I was on it. Did you not pack a lunch? Um, now, granted, that was before Financial Peace University. And, uh, but that old camera still arises from time to time. And I, I look at my bank account and not necessarily for any purpose, um, but merely just to make sure all is still in order and that I'm secured. And uh, as I spent my time studying this text, uh, you know, trying to figure out how I was going to break it up and, and present it to you this morning, um, and usually as I mostly do prepare for, for sermons, I, I, I study the text, I, I indulge in, in, in the text itself and studying it and knowing it, um, and as I studied it, I began to feel personal convictions all throughout the text. And uh, as I was feeling these personal convictions, I, I realized that um, this is how I was going to break up this sermon today. So I'm going to be going through the text and relaying some of the convictions I have because I have a feeling that if I'm having them, that maybe some of you have them as well. So, I'm going to start off with uh, verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Our text begins with the word therefore, which makes it a, a continuous thought from the previous passage, and in order to do it justice, I, I just need to recap what, what Jesus has been talking about. Um, you know, Jesus has been talking about storing up riches, uh, and which was a great conviction to anybody in the crowd that was wealthy and storing up for themselves riches. And, and he warns about storing up riches in which moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. And, and instead says, you know, put your focus on, on, on heavenly riches where moth and rust uh, cannot, you know, destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. <clears throat> um, and now we may say to ourselves when, when reading things like that, that, well, I'm not rich. I don't have vast amounts of wealth. So therefore... This text, although a good reminder, doesn't necessarily apply to me. But 
how often do we have our focus on the things of possessions and wealth and gaining more? We may not say, I want to be rich, but often our minds and thoughts and energies are going to more possessions. You see, what Lord, our Lord is doing here, he shows that the sin of the rich and even the poor or in anywhere in between is out of the same. The rich focus on what they have, which is the possessions, while the, the poor may be focused on what they don't have. The focus is still the same, that of possessions. And like I said, you may not have vast wealth, but how much of your energies, how much of your time, and how much of your, or, of your resources are you spending obtaining more? <clears throat> we can be just as guilty as those who are greedy and rich. Jesus exhorted against hoarding riches in the previous text and carries on this exhortation, but in a different dynamic, focusing on our daily provisions, food, water, and shelter, or clothing, which are necessary for life. And one might think to themselves, if anyone were to be anxious about anything, it should be this. It's not greedy. It's not, it's not hoarding. If there's one area in which we should be anxious about, that we should worry about, it is the basic necessities of life. The command here in Greek, be not anxious, has with it a connotation of stopping something that is already being done or in the process. So this was more than a mere warning, but a command to stop worrying. Jesus gives a reason as to why we're not to worry in the very next sentence. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, when I first read that, and when we first read, read that, I think we read it as, um, don't think about your food and water. There's, there's other things in this life to worry about. And I kinda, that's how I've kind of always read that text, that part of the text. You know, there's more things, you know, more important things in this world to, to, to worry about. But is that what Jesus is doing here? Taking our... our Focus from one worldly anxiety and putting it on another. What he, in essence, is doing is, is posing a very convicting question. What our Lord is doing is he's saying, take in consideration existence as a whole. Now, I thought about that. Now, you're all here alive today, for the most part. And for those of you who had coffee. And... I want to ask you, before you were born, how much anxiety did you have about coming into existence? What about when you were a child, a little baby? How much anxiety did you have about if you were going to be fed, clothed? What about a young child? Yet here you are, alive. So all of a sudden we begin to worry about things we've never worried about before. Let's consider this. Say I, I go to Tom over at uh, Manteca Chevrolet? Merced Chevrolet, sorry. Start with an M. I go to Tom and I say, Tom, I want you to create for me. You and your team get corporate. Money's no option. This is before FPU. And I, I want you to, to construct for me a, a, a truck. And I want, I want all the bells and whistles. I want navigation. I want, I want the big old spotlights. I want you know, tow package. I want 
Diesel, I want everything. I want this thing to be in magazines. I want everything. And Tom says, I got it. I got the guys already. They said they're, they're working on something specifically for you. And I said, great. And it's getting down to, to crunch time when the, the, my truck is going to be presented to me. And I, and I come to Tom and I say, Tom, you know, I forgot to tell you and your team to put windshield wipers on. And he says, oh, we'll, we'll have windshield wipers on it. I said, okay. And I come back the day before or whatever, and I say, no, Tom, you know what? I've been really, really stressing that you guys are not going to put oil and fluids in an engine. Really, really stressing about that. And he says, don't worry, it'll be in there. You know, we're not going to forget. And I was like, I'm not worried about you forgetting. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about you neglecting purposely. And I'm really stressed out about it. How many times do I have to go to Tom before and him and his team before they say, Cameron, listen, we know what we're doing. This is what we do. We're not going to build you this beautiful vehicle just for it to engine to blow up on you on the very same day. You see, my doubt in the obvious little things are a direct reflection upon my view of him and his team as an automobile manufacturer. Which brings me about my first conviction when reading this text. My anxieties reflect my doubt in God as creator and sustainer. In apologetics, you read about the cosmological argument and the teleological argument, which is basically um, an argument that shows that our universe is incredibly complex, but yet so precisely and perfectly balanced to create life here on earth. If the sun were further away, we'd freeze. If it was a little bit closer, we'd burn up. If Jupiter wasn't in its orbit, we'd be bombarded with space debris. If our moons weren't the right, the, the whole, everything, everything that, that sustains life here on earth is, is so perfectly balanced. And when you take in consideration our bodies, I mean, our circulatory system and, and how complex and, and how we're finding new things every day uh, about our bodies and how incredibly complex it is, compared to all that it takes place to ensure that you are alive and here today, food, water, and clothing is the least of these. What Jesus is doing here is using an argument form based upon the deductions from the greater to the lesser. He is essentially saying, consider this when you start to be anxious. Consider all that God has already done for you when you start feeling anxious. Often in the Old Testament, whenever God would make a covenant with Israel or would um, deliver them, they would consecrate an altar. They would would, uh, put up an altar for a memorial. And the purpose of it was, was to offer worship and praise, but what it was also to do was to be a symbol, a memorial for future Israel to look back and remember God delivered. Think of Joshua 4. And it's good for us to reflect on what God has done for us in the past to encourage us in the future. And I often tell people, you know, put up those mental altars in your head whenever God provides. I mean, he provides every day, don't get me wrong. Um, but, you know, those moments where you're just astounded at his provisions, you know, Put those mental altars in the back of your head that you can look back upon and, and remember that, that God has provided through difficult and 
and or unforeseen situations. Next verse. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Here, general revelations kind of take on a new meaning for me. For those of you who don't know, um, God reveals himself through uh, two different ways, general revelation and, and uh, special revelation. And general revelation is basically when we walk out and we can see creation, we can see the world, and we, we can know that there was a creator who creates marvelous and complex things. You know, we can know this about God just by looking out into the world. Um, it's what Paul talks about in Romans 1, 19-20, where he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I've always limited this to basically we can walk out in the world and see that there's a creator. And that's about it. And though general revelation does not reveal God to us in the depth that special revelation does in his word, it can reveal not only that he's a creator, but he's also a sustainer. Here our Lord continues with the deductions argument style, but reverses it. Here instead begins with the lesser and compares it to the greater. Jesus takes a general example like the birds in the air, which were most likely surrounding the people during the Sermon on the Mount. And talks about their complete reliance and utter, and utter and complete reliance upon God for their daily needs. Now, I want to pause here to, to, to caution us against a couple of things. This is not an excuse to be lazy. This is not to say that we can sit around and expect God just to give us anything and everything. Just because we have faith that he'll do so. You know, birds, uh, they work hard. You know, if you've ever seen birds, they're always um, gathering, or not gathering, but going for food. And, and uh, you know, there's times where seed is plentiful and times it's scarce. But yet, rather not, they are provided for. And this is not to say that those of us, that we're not supposed to save you know, there's a cost. People say, oh, well, then by having a, a good savings account or emergency fund is not having faith and trust in God, which is foolish. That's not to say that as well. <clears throat> and it's also not to say that our foolish buying decisions will be, we will be bailed out of just because we have faith in God. This does not give us a license to go and make foolish decisions with our money and say, well, I trust that God's going to provide. I needed that new Escalade, and I trust that God's going to provide for it. I have faith. So I just want to just pause right here and, and caution of, of any of that, and I won't go any further into that. God has equipped us with common knowledge or common sense. We should use it. So, Though they do not gather, reap, or store, your heavenly Father provides and feeds for them. Jesus' words are intentional, I believe. Your heavenly Father. Notice that he does not say God provides for them. Or 
their heavenly father provides for them, but your heavenly father provides for them. There is one creature that is made in the image of God, and that is us. The rest of creation is dealt with through God's general providence, but he is not their father. And this leads me to my second conviction while studying. My anxieties reflect my doubt in God as my loving Heavenly Father. If God cares for and sustains creation that is not created in His image and which He does not associate as its Father, how much more then does He care for us who are called His children if we are dealing in Christ? For those of you who are parents or who were parents of small children, Imagine with me, if you will, one day your child, say six, seven, eight years old, comes to you and says, with great anxiety, I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to be, that you're not going to feed me today. I'm worried about the clothes, that I'm not going to have any new clothes for school. All my my other ones wear out, and I'm I'm worried that I'm not going to have these things. And you tell your child, you ensure them, don't worry, I'm gonna, you're going to get fed. And when you, your clothes get worn out, we'll get you new clothes. Don't worry about that. And your child consistently comes to you with this anxiety. How long before you take this child aside and say, when have I never been able to provide? When have I, have I not had a, had a job for you or been able to, even if things were, were tough? And even in, in times of... of when money got tight, we still provided you food and clothing. But imagine your child says, I'm not worried about you being able to provide it. I'm worried if you will provide it. And this brings on a whole different feeling, does it not? It is much more serious of a concern on your behalf because what's in question is not so much your abilities for your child, but your love for your child. It's one thing for your child to question your abilities, but quite another for them to question your love. And is this not exactly what we do when we're worried over the basic necessities of life? All of us here will admit that we believe in the sovereignty of God. All of us will admit that, yes, I believe he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We will, we, and I believe that we truly will admit to that. We truly believe that. That God is able and in control of all things and able to provide all things. Everything is under his power. So our doubts and worries question not his abilities, but his love for us in providing these things. Are you not of more value to him? And I understand that for some of us, the idea of a, of a loving, giving father might not be the best title. Some of you may wrestle with this idea and notion of having a heavenly father that loves and cares for you because maybe your earthly father did not. But it is necessary that you see yourself, if you are indeed in Christ, as his child. It can only be then that you will know that he will care for you. If we were to completely grasp the idea and concept of God as our heavenly, loving Father, then I truly believe that worry would be impossible for us. Continuing on with the verse, he says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single 
hour to his lifespan. Our Lord then goes from the unnecessary need of worry to the uselessness of it. Some of your translations read uh, add a cubit, which is a measurement, I believe, of your elbow to your hand. Um, and basically, all he's talking about is your lifespan. Which of you can increase your lifespan by worrying, by, by this great anxiety? It does no good for you. I remember my first plane ride from, uh, it was from San Francisco to Orlando. And uh, I was nervous. And we get on the plane, and I think, oh, my gosh, we're going to die. I was really nervous about the plane ride. And every little bit of turbulence, I didn't know what turbulence was, every little bit of turbulence, I was like, here it is. And I remember my mom looking over to me and saying to me, something profound, she said, if it's your time, it's your time. Thanks, Mom. Oddly enough, this uh, did provide some comfort. And whether she knew it or not, she was making a uh, pretty good and bold statement about trusting in God and the sovereignty of God. And that he was in control and not us, and it will do me no good stressing about it. And what is interesting is that not only does worry not add to your life, but it has the ability to reduce or at the very least reduce the quality of it. Anxiety that causes stress can cause mood swings, headaches, sleeping issues, lack of energy, appetite loss, panic attacks, skin problems, joint muscle aches, increased blood pressure, high cholesterol, contribute to heart attacks, stomach cramps, reflux, nausea, weight fluctuations, digestive issues, reproductive system issues, and weaker immune systems. That's just the name of a couple. There was a really extensive list of what stress and anxiety can do on, the, on you physically. Maybe be like George Whitfield, who famously said, we are immortal until our work here is done. Our Lord continues, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Our Lord continues to compare the lesser with the greater. Jesus used the example of of the flowers of the field, uh, which lily here usually means, uh, most likely means just a general term for a variety of wildflowers native to Galilee at this time. It was interesting to me that with all of our advancements with art and color and computers and stuff like that, nothing truly compares to nature. <coughs> I'm for my, I myself have uh, lilies such as this all in my yard. I have a thing for lilies. <laughs> She's blushing. Um, but it's, it's amazing to me that now, with all of our advancement in color, we, we don't look, we may look at a TV screen and say, oh, wow, look at the, the color in that. But a flower or a, a tree um, during autumn, you know, that can stop us dead in our tracks, and we can actually admire that. And it, it, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, do not worry about your clothes in which, you're, in which even if you were to obtain, would not add anything to you, nor be as beautiful as that which comes out of the dirt. 
These flowers in which adorn the grassy fields was commonly cut down and dried out to be used for fuel for the furnace or oven and, and baking bread to heat it up faster to hurry the, the baking process. And here our Lord is focusing on the eternal compared to the non-eternal, the greater versus the lesser. And Jesus has been getting his listeners to focus on just that, eternal matters. In fact, you, in fact, if you are in Christ, you are God's eternal child and will spend eternity with him. And if your heavenly father so addresses the flowers of the field that are literally here one day and gone the next, how much more will he provide for you, his eternal child? He then ends the sentence by addressing his lessons by you of little faith. And here in lay my third conviction through my studies, which is the root of all the prior convictions and the ultimate cause of all anxieties in war, for worldly matters. My anxieties are a result of my failure, failure to apply my faith. My anxieties are a result of my failure to apply my faith. Faith is a we commonly get the misconception that faith is something that is just an automatic mechanism that kind of just kicks into place whenever, you know, doubt or troubles come. And this is untrue. It is something that must be applied. It is something that must be exercised. And how do you exercise? How do you exercise a muscle? You put stress upon it. You break it down. In the same way, our faith must be exercised. It must be applied. We must remember to whom the sermon is addressed to, which is believers. Jesus is speaking to them that have placed their faith in God to save them, but their faith seems to have stopped there. So they do have faith, but the faith they have is little. Their faith may be there for spiritual matters, but goes no further. And how often do I or we resemble this? We can securely say that God has saved us from the sin and hell that is our, and he is our rock and for all spiritual matters, but that same faith does not extend to the whole of our life. Jesus is calling them out on a lack of faith, but has also been instructing them on how to combat it at the very same time. He says the word consider, think. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it best, and I'm going to just quote him because he summarizes it perfectly. He says, faith, according to our Lord's teaching in this paragraph, paragraph, is primarily thinking. And the whole trouble with a man of little faith is that that he does not think. (coughs) Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds. Think about them. Draw your deductions. Look at the grass. Look at the lilies of the field. Consider them. The trouble with the person in little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else, end quote. It reminds me of James 1, 6, where it says, A man who doubts is like a wave being tossed to or fro by the wind. A man of little faith allows his circumstances to direct his actions instead of his faith. One of little faith allows his circumstances to direct his actions instead of his faith. I personally stand before you, a man guilty of this, knowing that Lord, the Lord has called me to things. 
And I can give you a list and reasons of why I can't do this. But when it comes right down to it, I don't believe God's going to provide. And how many of our situations, if we were truly honest with each other, we can give a list of reasons of why we can't talk to this person and evangelize. We can give a list of reasons of why we can't give. We can give a list of reasons of why we can't do something we feel God is calling us to do. But when it comes right down to it, and if you're honest with yourself, you don't trust that God will provide. It shows that I have more faith in the things of this world instead of him who created and sustains it. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Therefore, Jesus calls us to consider all that he has said thus far, and reiterates the command to be not anxious. Then compares anxieties over these things to that of a Gentile. Gentile here means just simply another term for pagan or unbeliever. And this is where my fourth conviction came in. My anxieties is representative of that of an unbeliever. Knowing what we know about our Heavenly Father, knowing all that He's done and all that He can do, and still having unbelief is reflected, reflective of an unbelieving heart. And herein lay the great danger. When we live our lives in a constant state of worry and anxiety for the uncertainty of the future or our daily provisions, we act and behave just like an unbeliever. Is not doubt the very thing that caused the fall in Genesis 3? The eating of the forbidden fruit came about because Adam and Eve doubted the promises of God and doubted that he had their best interests in mind. Charles Spurgeon said, The very essence of anxious care is imagining that we are wiser than God and the trusting of ourselves into his place to do for him that which we dream he either cannot or will not do. End quote. Does this not sound like the fall? When we doubt God, we naturally turn inward to ourselves and into the world for answers. I just got done doing a study through the Old Testament, and it was, it, was, it was insane how often when Moses was leading the Israelites out, how often you know, they, they saw the plagues, they, they saw the, the, the pillar of fire, and, the, and they, they saw the, the, the splitting of the Red Sea. They saw the miracles and wonders of God, and then they get out, and the moment they become thirsty, the moment they become hungry, they say, man, I wish we were back in Egypt. I'd rather have died in Egypt, at least in front of a uh, plate of food, whether be out, rather than be out here in the uncertainty, all because they were hungry. And now many of us may not struggle with financial anxieties. Maybe you're here and you say, that is not an issue for me. I don't care about the things of this world. I don't care about getting rich. And I don't care and I don't mind giving. I don't, I don't mind, you know, I'm not worried about losing my job. Um, if I do, I know God's going to provide that. 
And you may not fear losing these things. But when you hear the word cancer, fear strikes in our heart. How about us parents? We fear and have constant anxieties over our children. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to make a distinction here between having a a cautious um, worry over our children and being in a constant state of worry about the safety of our children. You see, we think and we say it's not okay to worry about the that which sustains our life, but then we worry about life being sustained itself. When we doubt God, we naturally turn to self and the world for answers, and I see this a lot amongst Christians in, in the dating world. I'm lonely. I can't find somebody. God hasn't provided a godly man or woman for me, so what do they do? They go to the world, and they date an unbeliever, and they marry an unbeliever. We turn for the world for financial instructions, comfort, marriage advice, how to raise our children, how to construct our household, even how to build our churches. There are so many anxiety medications out there. I literally wanted to get like a number for you guys to present, and I couldn't find a number. There were so many anxiety medications. I understand there are people who have general, you know, disease of of being anxious going on in public whatever it be but there's even anxiety medication for your pets no matter how we chop it up our anxieties concerning the things of this world are sinful and i believe we are guilty of it in one form or another worldly anxieties are a contradiction in the life of a believer And our Lord then goes in. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Here and lay my fifth conviction. My anxieties reveal whose kingdom I'm trying to build. Our anxieties and stress come from when things don't go our way, according to our plan, for our goal. When an unexpected financial uh, event hits our lives, we get mad because it prevents us from doing something we want to do, from having that money up for something that we want or we feel like we need. Jesus here offers a solution to our anxieties, and that is for us to be kingdom-minded. The whole theme of this chapter is that of worldliness and that of a believer and and getting us to be kingdom-minded people. As Colossians 3.2 says, set your minds on the things that are above and not the things that are below on the earth. Jesus tells his listeners, seek the kingdom rather than these things because your heavenly Father will provide those. Seek here implies a, a command to establish an ongoing habit or lifestyle of earnestly striving The idea is that the kingdom is not something you add to your life, but is now the purpose of it. Jesus, again, then compares the greater, the kingdom of God, to the lesser, our daily cares of life. 
His righteousness means to seek after his holiness. The holiness of God, and this is the idea in which our Lord is trying to get across. The more we seek God and his kingdom, the less important and aware of the cares of this world we will be. I'll say that again. The more we seek God and his kingdom, the less important and aware of the cares of this world we will be. And this seeking must be done first. And that's the key, is it not? I remember reading about, and even if you know, have Facebook, you've probably read uh, this story or uh, something comparable to it, another version of it. But I remember reading a story about a college professor who brought a big empty jar in front of his class, and he began putting big stones in it, and then asked his class if the jar was full. And they said yes, and then he began putting small pebbles in it until it was full. And they, he said, is it full now? And they said yes, and then he began emptying a big bag of sand into the jar until it could hold no more. And the idea behind this was, um, he was saying to his class that the big stones in here are representative of, of your things that are big and important in your life, your, your faith, your family, your friends. He said the little tiny pebbles are, are other things that are big and you know, needed and important, uh, but not as, as important, things like your job, your hobbies, your home. He says the sand is everything else. He says, and you notice that I have a big bag of sand. And the idea was, was that the jar is, is our life, and, and the sand that represented everything else was pretty much endless. He says if you reverse the order, you will have no room for the other things. And I believe this is what, the, what our Lord is trying to get across. There are so many cares in this life. There are so many things that can bombard and, and strangle us out. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Those worries, those little things that you're worried about, God will provide for that. Seek first God's kingdom. Fill your life seeking for God's kingdom, his will to be done It is reminiscent of the parable that Jesus tells in chapter 13 of the seed that falls amongst the thorns, who hears the word, but the cares of this world choke it out. And if you truly look at what consumes your time and your energies, what concerns you, where your anxieties lay, whose kingdom does it look like you're building? Whose kingdom does it look like you're most concerned about? We must earnestly seek God's kingdom and seek it first and foremost because if we don't seek it first, we will not seek it at all. Lastly, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Our Lord ends by stating for a third time, be not anxious. And if there's something that you're going to walk away from the sermon in this text, it's be not anxious. Jesus ends by warning his listeners to be not anxious about tomorrow's daily cares and needs. And in worrying about tomorrow, you will rob yourself in the present. How much of today's time do we waste that we cannot get back worrying about tomorrow's issues that we cannot change? How much of 2017 was wasted Worrying about things that either never came about or were nothing that you thought it would be. 
If the enemy cannot get you to focus off the kingdom with today's worries, then he will attempt to do so with tomorrow's. The Christian life is to be lived on a daily basis. Taking up our cross daily, our daily bread, seeking God daily, trusting him daily. How prone we are to thinking of the future and over-exaggerating our scenarios. We usually view uncertainty in the worst case scenario, do we not? Jesus says today has enough things to burden you and bombard our lives. Going back to the jar analogy, there will always be sand to add to the jar today, let alone tomorrow, and so on and so forth. I want to end this, and I am ending now. But I just want to uh, end this on my ultimate conviction. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Romans 5, 10. For while you were enemies, you were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And that, that became my ultimate conviction because and I don't mean to end this on a very down, negative note, but what I worry about, what we worry about, compared to Christ, I think of it, Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses. We were, Romans 5, we were enemies of God. Romans 8, he gave. Your salvation was bought and is the most important thing you could ever need. It is the greatest need you will ever have fulfilled if you are in Christ. And it was given to you and it was given to you at your greatest need while you were enemies, when you were least deserving. So, your greatest need that you could ever need was given to you when you were least deserving and when it cost God the most. To give us a job, a car, whatever it is, that costs God nothing. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. It cost him nothing. But yet, our salvation was our greatest need, and he purchased it for us when we're enemies, when we're least deserving, not asking for it, and when it cost him the most. His son. 
what a slap in the face of God when I question whether he can provide for my daily needs. What a great conviction. And we go back to Genesis 22, which John read earlier. And, and I don't want to take away from the testimonies at all. I think it is important and I think it is necessary for us to reflect on that which God has provided and remember that, he is, that all good gifts come from him. And I'm not trying to take away from any of that. But God provided for Abraham a sacrifice in place of his son, of his, of his I mean, your son in that time, I mean, that was everything. It was your legacy. It was your livelihood. I mean, you wanted to have a son and to not pass that on. So God provided the sacrifice. And sometimes it really just, it, it gets to me that I, I'm in awe when God provides for my wife and I a, a car that perfectly fit our budget. And I'm in awe of that. And don't get me wrong, and we should be thankful of that. But yet those things are of just small comparison compared to Christ. The ultimate provision for us. And we talk about putting up altars to, to remember. And God has placed for us the ultimate memorial. That we may look upon and reflect and remember God provided, God delivered. How foolish is it for us to doubt God in any other aspect of our lives? Twenty eighteen has in store for all of us uncertainties. But God provided. I have geared the sermon toward uh, believers, because that's what the text is addressing, but um, for the unbeliever that may be with us today. You have not the little faith. You have no faith. And your trouble is that you are trusting in yourself. And I plead that you would, you would know this. You would know this provision because you cannot provide it for yourself.